this today is part two of a series called DNA, and I just want to review part one. Last week, Reed introduced DNA, and the D, the first part, is discipleship. What he really introduced was a concept of spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship uh, is going to consist of D, N, A, and today is the N, nurture. I think that we were made for relationships. I was reading uh, a book on attachment theory that I think Zach Shackley turned me on to about a year ago. And they're asking this question, what does loneliness tell us about ourselves? Be it chronic or acute, slight or significant, loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for, we are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. Some of the most important, most significant gifts of God that I have experienced are spiritual friendships. Um, I have the great honor, the great gift of being married to one of my, my spiritual friends, Kelsey. A spiritual friend is somebody who's not just a friend, not just a shared kind of hobby together. It's not just that you occupy the same space and enjoy being with each other. It's that together you are seeking the Spirit's will in your life. You're seeking to be Spirit-led. You are practicing the way of Jesus. You're living discipleship, nurture, and accountability together. And some of God's greatest gifts to me have been spiritual friends. And yet, I continue to find that spiritual friendships are hard to maintain. Have you ever had this moment where you had deep spiritual friendships? A lot of us experienced them for the first time in high school because you're put into, if you grew up in church, you're put into a youth group and you're kind of surrounded by people at the same life stage. And there's enough structure and enough freedom that you can actually find spiritual friendships. There's somebody taking you to spiritual things and you're doing spiritual things and you're with people your age. And kind of over time, what happens is that you become friends with these people and you try to follow Jesus together. Now, a lot of us, we didn't grow up in youth groups that were all that functional, all that healthy. For instance, I, I didn't have a youth minister in my church, so I sort of became functionally the youth minister in my small town church in, in Texas. And spiritual friendships could only be formed if we decided to do them. And a lot of people, we had other options. And so there was things that I would rather do at times in, in high school. But I remember my junior year, I finally decided that I wanted spiritual friends, not just sports friends. I wanted, I wanted spiritual friends, not just a basketball team. And so I chose to invest my primary friendships with the, the people of shared faith. And it, it has made all the difference in my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. Changed even what I'm doing today. Uh, some of us, we encountered it in college. College, again, is that, that balance of structure and freedom. Maybe you were a part of a campus ministry, like, like one that used to meet right here, and you, you met some other people there. And there was enough freedom, and you found people of the same age. Or maybe you were at a Christian college, like a lot of you went to, and you found people who wanted to follow Jesus, and you had things in common. You became spiritual friends. But once you leave college, or once you leave a campus ministry, it can be really difficult to sustain spiritual friendships. And so instead of spiritual friendships, we have work friends. And work friends and spiritual friends are not the same thing, are they? Work friends and spiritual friends do different things for fun. We have shared hobbies, so you may have like game friends, or you may have sports friends. Um, I, I, I love doing all those things. 
But when I talk to especially young men here, what I keep hearing is that people want spiritual friendships, but they just don't know how to get them. Somebody described this uh, part of the, the difficulties, the, just the transition of our lives. They, they wrote this, that we are nomads, perpetual immigrants, condemned to move from place to place in our own country. This is part of what adds to this difficulty, is that we're constantly, most of us aren't living in our hometowns, and even if you are, most of the people you grew up with aren't here anymore anyway. And so we're just constantly facing transition, and this makes spiritual friendship different, difficult. But I keep talking to these young guys who want this, and I presume young women too, although I'm a little more guarded with how I spend time with young women. They want this. They've tasted this, spiritual friendship, somebody to follow Jesus with, somebody that can actually help them be more transformed into the image of Jesus. They want this, but they've never seen it. It's not something their dad ever showed them. And it's not something that was handed to them. It's like, here's how to cultivate a spiritual friendship. And it's something that even if you had it, then you're in a new place, in a new time, and you have less time to do it. It's just hard. So how do we do this? Reed introduced this idea last week, and he said, at the core of what we need to do is invite discipleship to Jesus into our relationships. And if our relationships can be centered on discipleship, then we're off to, we have one of the key ingredients to spiritual friendship. But he said, if you're part of a church, that's actually not enough. He says, we have three gathering spaces kind of at Oikos for most churches. We have this one on Sunday. This one's really good. It's, it's worship. You know, it's a big group. It's donuts and coffee. And occasionally, you can slow down for a few minutes and you can listen to somebody. Today, we listen to how God is caring for you recently. This is a good question. But, you know, a strong, durable spiritual friendship can't really be sustained by what we do today. This today is an essential thing that we're doing. It's a, a big part of life in Christ but we need something else. And he also said that even Oikos groups aren't quite that. He said, we have, you know, 10 to 15 adults and 400 kids. I think that was what he said. And that's what it feels like sometimes. So the rhythms and the noise and, and just having so many people, it means that you can't always go as deep as you want, even in that environment. And so even sometimes we, we have these moments where we break through and somebody breaks down and they, they're weeping and you can see the Lord doing something that feels like friendship, but we want it to be more. And so what we're introducing in this series is something we're going to call DNA groups. They're actually groups within our Oikos groups. And I'll talk more about them at the, at the end of our time. But really what we're doing is looking at Jesus and saying, what did his friendships, what did his spiritual friendships look like? What was his call for us? And his call for us is to practice discipleship together. And discipleship for Jesus isn't like any of the other ancient rabbis. Ancient rabbis, they would gather students, and then those students would grow and mature, and then they would become rabbis. And Jesus is saying, I don't want any of you to call yourself rabbi. I don't want any of you to call yourself father, because <laughs> you've got a father and you've got your rabbi. That's not you. You are all constantly and continually in discipleship together. Jesus is discipling us. And so what we're designing are DNA groups, which are mutual, age and not age, gender-specific groups of three to five within our Oikos groups to practice discipleship, nurture, and accountability. And today, I want to introduce this idea of nurture. Now, 
men, can I just talk to you for just a second? Um, there's, there's kind of a twist on a lot of what it looks like to be a man in our culture. And most of us probably weren't raised by fathers who talked a lot about nurture. Is that, is that fair? Kind of nod your head, men. Did you hear a lot about nurture or no? No, some of you may have some of you may have a very nurturing relationship with your dad. I'm actually not here to talk about your dads today. I'm here to talk about you and me. So nurture for us may be a turnoff. It may be something you're a little intimidated by. It it had, brings up this idea of intimacy, of tenderness, of kindness. But what I want you to to see today, men, is that the greatest man who ever lived is the most nurturing man who ever lived. His manhood is not threatened by his nurturing spirit. His mercy and his compassion add to his, his manliness in the truest sense of being a man who is here to tend and to keep God's garden that's here. And so please don't be turned off by the idea of nurture. I think nurture can actually add to your fullness. And by adding to your fullness, when you bring this nurture together and surround yourself with it, it can actually add to, it, it has this multiplying effect. The nurture, it like, like seeds in a garden, they tend to spread. Let me just define what nurture is, then we'll look at the nurture of Jesus, and then we'll look at just a quick case study of a man who was a nurturer. So what is nurture? How did Jesus nurture? And then a quick case study in nurture. What is nurture? If you just Google nurture, it's going to say something like this. To care for and encourage the growth or the development of something. To care and to encourage the growth or development of something. Let me give you three word pictures. The first word picture, I think of my dad. My dad, when he was a teenager, he worked in a plant nursery. You hear the word nurse, nursery and nurture. He worked at a plant nursery and he loves plants. If you just walk around with him in a forest, he can like point out the leaves and he can tell you what those species of those plants are. He enjoys gardening. I've met several uh, amazing gardeners. Even, I don't see Marshawn here today, but Marshawn is a nurturer of plants. He, he fills up his whole estate with productive gardening. Um, he, if you need gardening tips, talk to Marshawn. He's, he's your guy. Brian over here, he... He's my go-to. I ask him a lot of questions. But it, actually, the Latin word for nurture has this idea of, of both feeding and cherishing something. This is like a gardener. A gardener knows how to feed the plants, and he delights in them. He, they, they bring joy to him whenever he sees them grow and be fruitful. That's nurture. That's second word picture. The mother. Um, man, it's, it's hard for me to not think of a nursing mama when it comes to nurture. Do you hear that word nursing and nurture? If nurture is about feeding and cherishing, there's no better picture than, than a mama with a, with a baby literally feeding as she is just gazing upon him, just struck by this gift of God. There's, there's these glimpses of motherhood and fatherhood where a, a parent can just be overwhelmed by looking at their child and just the delight that we get to experience while all of the caretaking is 
is thrust on us, it's like, yes, I want all of that. And one of God's greatest gifts is to share in the, his fatherhood. Um, the last one is of a doctor or nurse. Do you hear the language of nurse? Um, man, some of our hardest times, I remember we were in a, a hospital and the, the doctor had to deliver some devastating news to Kelsey and to me. And it, I just cannot, it was almost like he was an angel. I think he went to work every day. I don't think he's actually an angel. But his bedside manner was so meaningful. His tenderness and nurture and concern for us in a time of despair. You see, he didn't just want to care for us. He cared for us. I mean, he cared for us, not just what was happening physically. I was thinking of another scary time. We were in the hospital. Kelsey was giving birth to Evie, and we were fortunate to have Melissa Shelby as our nurse. Many of you know her. Um, she's actually the daughter of Kelsey's childhood doctor. So she has this family friend who's in the room, and we know that she's not just there to clock in and clock out. She's there to care for us, and she did. But actually, this is beginning to answer the question, if that's what nurture is, to care for and to encourage the growth or the, the development of something. We're beginning to see, even in these word pictures, the nurture of Jesus. Just, just kind of walk back through these for just a second. The, the gardener pictured. Actually, Jesus, he uses this language to talk about his father. He says, I'm the vine, but my father is the gardener, the vine dresser. He says, he is tending and pruning. He, he is carefully working in the lives of each person so that they will stay connected to him and bear much fruit. That's how he describes his role. God's role is like a gardener. Of course, Jesus is the true son of Adam, so you can get there through there too. That Adam is entrusted with tending and caring for the garden. And then we see the true son of Adam, who whenever he comes out of the grave is mistaken for the gardener. Are you the gardener, Mary says? Yes and no. (laughs) He is the the nurturer of souls. But he's also, in some sense, this, this mother figure. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is how he talks about it. In Matthew 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He looks at the city of God, the city of so much history that he's been observing for a thousand years from heaven. And he's now, he's, he's weeping as he looks on. He says, The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under, your, under her wings, but you were not willing. He says, I'm like a mama hen, and I just want to wrap up my chicks and protect them. This is how Jesus describes it. He is a nurturing person. We also see it in this language of doctor, and this is actually where we'll spring today. You remember where Jesus, he says that he's like this physician. He's the doctor that's come to help the sick people. Now, this, this section actually comes in Matthew 9, right in the middle of two chapters of healing. So in Matthew 8, the first healing story is the healing of a leper. Then he heals the centurion servant. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then it's interesting. It pauses in the middle of all these healing stories. And Matthew gives us this statement about the purpose of Jesus' healings. 
He says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He's, he's, the, he's the man who comes to fulfill God's story. He's not just like God. He's not just the true son of Adam. He is fulfilling God's full purpose for the nurture of all humanity. And it says that he's taking it on himself. He heals one, two, three, and then Matthew said, this is what's happening. He's taking on our pain in himself. And then he keeps going. He tells more stories after that. He nurtured people to wholeness over and over and over. He nurtures people. He, two men with demons. The paralytic is healed. There's a girl who, who dies, and he restores her to life. There's a woman who's healed. He takes her by the hand. There's two men who are blind that he gives them their sight. They say, have mercy on us, and he touched their eyes. There's this mute man who gives the ability to speak. Over and over, Jesus is caring for people. He's nurturing people to wholeness. One of our, our values as a church is, is called holistic ministry. And of our values, this is the one that gets the most questions. What does holistic ministry mean? It sounds almost like a holistic medicine shop where who knows what you can buy there. That's not what we mean. We mean that Jesus is caring for the whole person. When you see Jesus, he's not just caring for like the spiritual side of people. He's caring for people, all of it, the spiritual and the physical. He's caring for their blindness and their muteness and their paralysis. He's caring for their exclusion from community like a leper. He's caring for even, even to the dead themselves. He's caring for them as people. So he's caring, he's nurturing them, he's he cares for and he encourages the growth or the development of whole people. He wants them to be included in relationships. He wants them to thrive physically. And in the middle of all these stories of healing in Matthew 8 and 9, there's this one story where he talks about how he's this doctor that's come. Except this is the story that doesn't focus on physical healing. It's the story that focuses on spiritual healing. And so today we're going to dive into Matthew 9. We're really just going to look at a couple of verses in 9 through 13. If you have the Coffee House Bible, it's page 834. But Matthew chapter 9, let's just dive into this text, make a few observations, and then we'll, we'll share one case study. So he, Matthew 8 9, again, it's almost all of the healing stories in Matthew are put here. They're, they're all kind of grouped together so that you can see what's happening Jesus is healing one, he's healing another, and it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, I know Cheryl is already thinking of the show, The Chosen, where, okay, some others are too. Uh, that in, in The Chosen, Matthew is kind of presented as a man who's probably on the spectrum, and he, he has some oddities but man, there's almost no more compelling character in the show than Matthew. Matthew is really the driver of the, the first season. Well, we don't know most of that, right? That's not the, the picture we get here. But this is that man, the man who is a tax collector. I was reading a few commentaries, and some of this you probably know or have heard before. But the Jews, the commentary said, probably considered Matthew a traitor since collecting taxes entailed cooperating with the Roman occupiers of Palestine. So Matthew, he works at the tax booth. 
And now this may be like a customs port or he may be taxing the fish that's caught in the nearby Sea of Galilee. We're not exactly sure what he's taxing, but either way, he's taxing on behalf of the Roman occupiers. He is a despised person by most people in his Jewish world. He is Jewish working for the enemy in the middle of his hometown. It's, it's like, guy, shouldn't you move to Rome? If you're going to work for Rome, just get out. These people hate him in his own place. He's probably considered a traitor, but look how Jesus treats him. He shows up to the booth, and he just says, follow me. Now, Reed showed this invitation is actually, it's all over the Gospel of Matthew. It's like eight to ten times. He invites people to follow me. Follow me, he told them, and look what Matthew did. I love that in the church, you know, we debate lots of things. Faith and works is one of those things that Christians debate endlessly. Christians have divided for centuries over faith and works. <laughs> but there's some simplicity to just looking at a guy like Matthew. What do you need to do when Jesus says, follow me? You need to get up and do it. <laughs> Matthew got up and he followed him. It's like, what is a disciple? It's somebody who gets up and does the thing that Jesus asks you to do. Now, yes, it's by the power of God. Yes, it's by the grace of God. Yes, it's by the spirit of God. But at some point, when Jesus says, you got to follow, you got to get up and do it, Matthew gets up and he follows him. Now, this probably isn't their first encounter. Jesus has been working in this area for a long time, so most commentators will say this is probably the culmination of Jesus observing all of these healings that have been happening around. And he knows that he has a sickness of his own, but it's not a physical sickness. So Jesus he follows Jesus, and Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now, this is the NIV. NIV kind of puts it into modern English. But this, this phrase is actually not he's having dinner at. It's literally he's reclining in the oikos. He's reclining in the home. The oikos is a Greek word in Scripture that means home or family. But that word reclining, it says what kind of event this is. Now, most Jewish meals, like us, they would have tables and chairs. But there were certain types of meals called banquets where they would recline together around the table. And banquets were very often intimate affairs. Jesus calls this man who's hated, a tax collector, a traitor, and then the next thing you know in the scene, they're laying on top of each other. They're, they're reclining on one another in the home. Do you see the intimacy of this scene? Having dinner at somebody's house doesn't quite capture the fullness of what's happening here. And it says many tax collectors and sinners, they came and, remember, ate with him is not what it actually says. It's that they reclined with him. So it's not just Matthew who has this invitation to follow me and he gets up and he does it. It's also all of Matthew's friends. The, do you see what the friends are called? Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, like we've already said it, are known traitors. They're despised by most people. And sinners are people who are just kind of flaunting their embrace of something that the law calls sin. And so if you're flaunting something that the law calls sin, you end up getting a reputation. Many times these would be sex workers or some other sin that would have been public that you could see and everybody knew it. 
and you kind of embraced it. Jesus is reclining with these people. When the Pharisees saw this, now the Pharisees are almost the opposite of tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees are, are uh, a populist group. It's like a, the, the, it's like a union. It's a group of the people. But these people are unionized, so to speak, around law-keeping and rituals. Not, not the most fun union you've ever heard of, but that's nevertheless a very prominent, popular union was uh, this, this Pharisee group. When these people see what's happening, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher, your rabbi, why does he eat together with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do this? This is a really good question. And Jesus' answer to this question is going to bring us back to this idea of nurture. Why is it that Jesus would go out of his way to be with people who are scorned by others? Why is it that Jesus would, would touch the leper or would heal the blind or go to the demon-possessed or deal with the dead? Why is it that Jesus would deal with tax collectors and sinners? Let's look at what he says. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, this is a little odd, right? Because the, Matthew 8 and 9 have all of these healing stories, just healing after healing after healing after healing. And then Matthew, apparently, is physically healthy. And yet, Matthew is the story that prompts a reflection on true sickness. He says, the healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the sick people. So go and learn what this means. You see the quotations around what, what he's about to say. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a public rebuke. He's, he's scolding them publicly. He's embarrassing his accusers because he's citing one of the prophets. This is from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. What Hosea is dealing with hundreds of years before Jesus Hosea is dealing with people who are all about rituals, but they're actually forsaking the true meaning of the covenant they've made with God. They just keep coming back to the rituals and the laws and their traditions, and they say, we're good as long as we do these things, and then we can live the rest of our life kind of as is. Jesus quotes Hosea, and he says, I desire mercy. It's the Old Testament word, hesed. It's steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. In the New Testament, it's translated mercy. I desire mercy, the Lord says. I, I, want, I want real covenant keeping, not rituals. I want mercy, not sacrifice. All, all of your rituals and your sacrifices and your symbols, that's not actually what I'm after. I want mercy. The other day, I guess it's been a few months. I was, I was reading uh, Dane Ortland's book called Gentle and Lowly. I, I love it. It's a great kind of devotional book. Um, soon, at some point, I'm going to give all of you a, a copy of that. The publisher was giving away hundreds and hundreds, so I ordered some for all of us. It's, it's good. And what Ortland does is he presents Jesus as really merciful, compassionate, kind, loving, gentle, and lowly. But I was reading some people who were critiquing Ortland. They said, you know, he's not presenting a balanced picture of Jesus. Basically, he's, 
He's making it look like Jesus is too loving. What we really need is balance, where you get the strictness of not just the shepherd who tends the sheep, but also the shepherd who whips the sheep and turns over tables. And we need that kind of balance. And, you know, there's part of me that I want to be as biblical as, as Scripture. I want to, the Jesus of Scripture is the Jesus I want to preach to you, and that's the Jesus that we follow. So there's, there's no disparity there. But is this balance really accurate? You see, this word mercy is actually all over Matthew. Matthew seems to love this idea of mercy. He's taking this Old Testament concept of hesed, and he's translating it into mercy. And over and over, people are talking about mercy. They'll go up to Jesus and they'll say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Do you know what? Every time somebody comes to Jesus and asks for mercy, do you know what he does? He's balanced. And sometimes half the time he says, no mercy for you. And the other half the time he says, mercy for you. No, no, please, please no, that's a joke. That's absolutely never what he does to people who come to Jesus asking for mercy. 100% of the time. When people come to Jesus and ask for mercy, he's merciful. He's nurturing. Over and over, this happens. Two blind men have mercy on us in chapter 9, verse 27. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He repeats this same quotation again in chapter 12, verse 7. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He heals on the Sabbath because he desires mercy, not just the ritual of their Sabbath law-keeping. There's a Canaanite woman, a foreign woman. She comes to him and she says, have mercy on me. And he does. Lord, have mercy for my son. Okay, you've got it. The blind men, Lord, have mercy on us. He, he heals them. The Pharisees, they, he says, they neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Jesus is not... Uh, distributing mercy half the time and then severity the other half of the time. Anyone who comes to Jesus for mercy receives his mercy. Does that mean that everyone receives his mercy? No, because many people in the Gospels aren't coming to Jesus asking for mercy. Instead, they're saying ritual, sacrifice, law, tradition. And those people who do not see their sickness have no need of a doctor and cannot get his healing. He says, they have a sickness that I can't touch because I can only touch the sickness of the people who come to me and say, will you have mercy? But if you come to Jesus and ask for mercy, you will find it. He is merciful. He's abounding in mercy. This is who he is. God is love. And he has demonstrated his love at the cross of Jesus. And he has mercy available through his blood. He's paid the price. He's shown us that he has mercy there. So when we talk about a balanced view of Jesus, the balance is really seen in terms of the audience, not Jesus himself. Are you somebody who's willing to say, Jesus, I am sick and broken and I need your care? I am... I'm sick and I need a doctor. You have the only thing that I need. When people come to Jesus saying, you're the only one that's got what I need, he comes through every time. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, so-called, 
I've come to call sinners. And thank God that is why we are here today. Amen? We are here as sinners who can say, we need a doctor. We need a doctor, yeah, for broken feet and surgery. We need a doctor for our souls. And Jesus is the one who nourishes into wholeness in the full sense of the word. Wholeness and holiness all at the same time comes through this man, Jesus. This is awesome. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And we see that Jesus nurtured physically and spiritually. He is there. He's there for mercy. He's compassionate. He pours it out. Uh, this is, um, sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm just at a loss for describing how great this guy is, but <laughs> you're at the right place. I'm not talking to people who haven't met him <laughs> or haven't read about him. So uh, just, just praise this name of Jesus who is merciful to us and to me. But what's striking is that if you continue reading in Matthew 9, he's not only merciful to people like Matthew and tax collectors and sinners and, and blind people and broken people and paralyzed people. At the end of this section, remember, almost all of them are clumped into Matthew 8 and 9, almost all of his healings. But he gives a summary statement at the end of 9 where he actually, he's not only the one doing the physical and the spiritual healing, he's sending his disciples to do the same. Let's look at this. The end of nine, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogue. He was proclaiming the good news, good news to sinners, the good news of the kingdom, and he was healing every disease and sickness. This is just a summary statement. If you want to know more about Jesus, he's like, I can't even contain all of the good stuff that he was doing in this part of town. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we've, we've shared this passage before in Luke's version of Luke 10. But Jesus calls his disciples into the field of tax collectors and sinners and broken people, of sinners who need a doctor. This is the context. It's in the context of him healing. And he says, there's a whole lot more people who need nurture. Who's going to go? Is the Lord going to raise up people to go be nurturers? He says, pray. That's the only. Pray for people who will have the compassion of Jesus to connect them with a the doctor. A lot of times I describe my ministry as an ambulance driver. <laughs> uh, there's a situation that arises and then I need to get them to the one who can take care of them. Now, ultimately, of course, I'm trying to get them into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus, but there are other nurturers that I'm trying to make handoffs to. We need more nurturers in this church to carry the burden of brokenness. Because, look around, you're in a room full of broken people who are sinners. We are not the righteous. That's why we're here. We are here to receive his righteousness as sinners, which means we need nurturers who can help with this. We need you to be nurturing and to connect people with Jesus. Can I just give one case study of what it would look like for a disciple of Jesus to kind of take this on? And I think we may see some of how those seeds can play out. It's actually the man named Barnabas. 
Now, I'm going to kind of race through some passages, but mostly I just want to tell the story of, of this guy. You know Barnabas. Barnabas, his name is actually Joseph, but nobody ever knows him as Joseph. <laughs> in Acts 4, he's introduced. He's Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus. And it says that he got a nickname called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This, this guy is, I mean, that's how I want to be known. He, he built people up so much that the apostles gave him a nickname as son of encouragement. And that's how you, 2,000 years later, know this guy. Now, in Acts 4, it's because he's generous. He's actually taken his family's plot of land and he sold it and he gave it away to the community. He shared it all. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. But a few chapters later, we see Barnabas show up again. This is actually after the conversion of a man named Saul of Tarsus. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of Christians. When Saul, that persecutor murderer, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, reasonably so, not believing that he was really a disciple. After all, if somebody has been killing all your friends and running them out of town, you tend to doubt whether his conversion is actually real. But Barnabas, I love this phrase, but Barnabas, but look at what the verbs Barnabas did. He took him and he brought him and then he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Do you see what he started doing? He pulled him in. You're actually going to see Barnabas pulling in lots of people. He pulls them in, he encourages them, and then he advocates for them. He speaks the truth when other people are feeling fear. And it makes all the difference in the world for this guy. He's accepted into the community because of the nurturing care of Barnabas. A few chapters later, Barnabas is sent to a city called Antioch. In Antioch, the church has gone multi-ethnic. It's not only Jews, it's also Gentiles, and they send him to investigate. And he gets there, and he sees the outpouring of the Spirit on Gentiles, and it says that he is glad, and he's celebrating, encouraged. They, he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with with all their hearts. And describe him like this. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. But a, a little bit later, it says Barnabas, it says he goes and he searches for Saul. He says, I know who would be perfect for a ministry like this. And look at what he does. He found him, he brought him, and then they begin ministering together in Antioch. In Antioch, this is where the Spirit calls them as they're praying and fasting. The Spirit calls them. This is actually a wonderful text for our prayer and fasting this week, where you're feeling like you don't know which direction to go. You're facing transition or decision. Acts 13 is a pretty good spot to go and reflect. But the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Why? Because I'm going to send them out to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles in the other cities too. This is what happens. Barnabas, he brings Saul with him. And now he's sent by the Spirit with Saul to take the gospel to the nations. Look what he does. He wanted to take John Mark. Um, actually, they did, excuse me. They did take John Mark on this trip. But do you remember the story where John Mark actually abandons them on the way? He goes home and he deserts them. So after this trip is over in Acts 15, 
Barnabas wants to bring John Mark back in, the nurturer, the encourager that he is. He continues to pull people in, but, but Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And so what happens is it says there's a fierce disagreement and Barnabas and John Mark go one way and Paul and Silas and, and Timothy go another way and in the providence of God. There are now two productive mission teams going through the, their churches that they've been at. But what's amazing is that at the end of the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it is John Mark that Paul sends for when no one else is there. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. You see, Barnabas was right all along. Because of somebody who could go and pull in and care for and encourage the growth or the development of somebody broken, now you end up seeing just amazing influence and seeds. So what could this look like in the 21st century in Memphis at Oikos Church? We're calling these kind of groups where we're trying to practice discipleship, nurture, and accountability, DNA groups. So a DNA group is really where we're seeking spiritual friendship. It's actually what I think a lot of us are seeking. I was asking Kelsey, I was like, are you interested in a DNA group? She was like, I would love that. See, I would too. In, in our group, I love our group. We get together on Sunday afternoons. Uh, we, we play, we eat, we, we study, we reflect, we cry, we feast, we fast. But I want more time with those guys. There are guys in my group that I want more time with. And Kelsey feels the same way about the ladies in her group. Just, can we go a little deeper? I love what we have, but I actually want more with you. And I think it's probably the same in other groups too. Where it's like, this is good, but I think I would actually want even more with you. Can we, as brothers and as sisters, can we go deeper? Can we have spiritual friendship? Not just where we're in a group together, but we're actually sharing heart-to-heart -heart nurture together. I think we can. Here's some of what it will look like in this design. These are optional, which means you don't have to opt in. Uh, if you don't want to be in your group's DNA groups, that's fine. Some of you, though, may want to be, and you just don't have the capacity to be. That's hard, but that, that's understandable. Every decision we say, you know, every yes is a million no's. <laughs> so we, we all have to make decisions about how we use our time. These are just optional. Um, if, if you want to opt in, you can. We'll launch these soon in April. They're gender specific. Gender specific means it's just like the, the men are invited into one and the women are invited into one. And the reason I think it's pretty obvious is that you can have conversations with men that you wouldn't want to have with other women. Um, I've kind of already alluded, just for the sake of integrity and for the sake of, of trust and kind of solidarity, I think this is a really wise practice. There are three to five adults. Adults means these aren't for kids, which means moms and dads are going to have to balance who's got kids and when we can get together. And so an early morning may work for some and a late night may work for others. A lunch on, you know, school days. Parents are going to have to figure all that out. But three to five. Why three to five? It's because there's a level of intimacy that can happen at three to five that can't happen at six and more 
And so our design here is that once a group gets to six consistently, they just form two groups of three and they continue the same practice together. The goal here is actually not multiplication. That may happen. The goal here is trust. And so trust needs small and it needs time. And so within Oikos groups of three to five, and they meet about once a month. If your group wants to meet more, do it. That would be awesome. And by the way, if you want spiritual friendship with people who aren't in your Oikos group, do that. That would be awesome too. That's just not what this is. <laughs> That's called lunch. That's called friendship. You can, all of that is free. You can do that anytime you want. We're just trying to provide enough structure to go along with your freedom to try to cultivate even more spiritual friendship that we see. Here's some of what it can look like. This is an example of an Oikos group. If this looks like too cellular, I'm sorry. So here's, here's an Oikos group, and then here are the, the, the DNA groups within it, say a group of men or a group of women, and then there are some people who, who don't have the time or the desire right now to be part of it. It's totally fine. Do you see how the, they're within an Oikos group? That's, that's the design here. So optional uh, uh, groups that will start in, in about a month. We'll, we'll kind of begin organizing these. Um, just share what I think might happen though. So in my group, there's a couple of guys that I'm just like, yeah, I, I want more time with you. Um, but then I, I, I think historically about what was happening because somebody nurtured somebody. Now I shared those stories, right? We, we looked at Matthew. Matthew was a he was a traitor. He was a despised person who had no friends within like the community of faith. His friends were just more tax collectors and sinners. But somebody showed him nurture. You know, I mean, the whole year we're studying the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the guy, at least according to uh, early church historians, he's the guy that took the gospel to Africa. He went to Ethiopia. He reached the daughter of the king. He was killed for it. He, he was reaching continents for Christ. He was giving us the gospel of Matthew that we're still gaining wisdom and the spirit is still working to transform our lives. How did this happen? Because Jesus reclined with him at a table. And showed intimacy and trust and love to a man who hadn't received it from the community of faith before. We talked about Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a nurturer. He was imitating. He was sent out just like Jesus said, I need more people to go nurture in this field. But look at who he nurtured. He, he took a, another despised man, a broken man, a sinful man, Saul the persecutor. And now there is no more influential person outside Jesus Christ himself than the Apostle Paul. And it's because of the nurture of a friend. Half our New Testaments are written by this guy. Continents, again, peoples were reached because of this guy. Our lives are changed every time we open up Scripture and read from this guy. Why? Because he was nurtured. Somebody advocated for him. Somebody came close and took him in. Look for him. Somebody said some hard stuff to some people. They spoke truth when he needed it, when others needed it. And then he did it again for John Mark. And then, it's, just, it's just endless to think. And then I think of your life. 
Has anyone ever shown you care and nurture? And if they have, it was probably your mama. And you love her dearly for it. And you are better because of it. And I think this is what we want. We want to be in spiritual friendships where we nurture one another and are nurtured. And we may be threatened by intimacy and we may think it sounds like weakness. But we actually know, I think in our heart of hearts, that this is strength. So I want to invite you to practice nurture with one another. In discipleship, where we speak truth and we speak mercy. We listen graciously and we answer even more graciously. And you may think, oh, I don't know how to do that. There's going to be enough structure here. There's going to be a pretty simple guide to just ask a few questions and to give a few reflections where somebody will feel their soul cared for. These seeds, we have seen it. These seeds of nurture have the power to transform. I want to ask the Lord to, to bless these seeds. Would you stand? I want to pray for us. And then would you go grab your kids? Speaking of seeds of nurturing. Oh, Lord of the harvest, would you send out nurturers into the harvest fields at Oikos Church? Lord, would you grow our heart's desire to give and to receive nurture? To be seen and to see. To speak truth and love. To ask and to answer with grace. Lord, would you burden our hearts with the desire for spiritual friendship? And would you bless our efforts, Lord God? Would you open up doors to make the schedules work, to make the, the practical stuff happen? And would you keep the enemy away as we're trying to step into more and more nurture? Lord, we do it for the cause of your kingdom. Would you send us out into the harvest for your kingdom and glory in the name of Jesus? Amen.